It's good to be with you today. All right, there we go. It's good to be with you today. How are y'all doing? Good. I bring uh, greetings from Ensenada, Mexico, where we have a team, a mission team down there right now uh, of 30 people. It was 32 until Jenna and I left them early to fly back here and be with you this morning which we're pleased to do. And I just want to ask you today in your prayers, would you pray for them as they worship with the church this morning and then travel across the border into San Diego and they'll be flying home with us tomorrow. Uh, So we hope that you'll all join us in praying for their safety and that they'll uh, come back to us full of lots of good stories and good news about what's been accomplished there this week. Um, If you would open up to Leviticus chapter 19 and we'll get started there this morning in just a minute. And before we do that, uh, I want to point out just a couple of things to you from our bulletin. Hope that you'll take note of some of these opportunities. There, there are so many things going on in the next month that I can't give them all fair time. You, I mean, we just can't cover them all. So you're going to have to do due diligence and read your bulletin. Okay, so that's why we print them. That's for you and that will do you well. Uh, but just note them real quick on the very front, the Heart Sisters groups that uh, that are starting next month is a wonderful opportunity for community to build relationships with other women in the congregation. We hope that some of you will take advantage of that. Uh, there's an opportunity today, it ends today, to sign up for some tickets for the baseball game that we're going to see together this month. Uh, you'll see all of these here in the bulletin, but one that I especially want to point out, uh, there is a card included today in your bulletin. Uh, by which you could indicate if you would like to serve in our guest team, welcoming uh, those who come to our church on Sunday morning. And my understanding is that there are some boxes provided at each of the info booths uh, in the three foyers that you could leave that card in at the end of today. And we still have the form up online that you can fill out also. So we hope some of you will take advantage of those things. There's a lot going on, a lot of good And now we'll uh, bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll enter into today's text. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, uh, we are grateful to be together in worship. We're thankful for the songs that we've sung and the thoughts that Walton uh, shared with us as he led us back to the cross and reminded us of Christ's gift for us, uh, his great love for us that he extended to us while we were still sinners and far from you. God, we know that we were strangers to you. We were foreigners to your kingdom. We were far from you and without hope until you showed us love. And we pray that that love that you've shown us will so transform our hearts, our ministries, our worship, our spirit in this church, and all of the things that we do together as a church, that we will be able to show that same great love of yours to others. Father, as we enter into the text this morning and as we discuss it, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, give us wisdom and insight, and we pray that you will draw us nearer to Christ. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and all who agree say, amen. So this week in Mexico, uh, there were several strange things that happened, some of them funny, and maybe some of them uh, not so much uh, funny, but There are always a few moments of awkwardness that happen whenever you bridge cultures. There are always some things that get a little bit confused. 
And an example of one of those was a conversation that happened between the American mission team and the Mexican church members who were working together on a service project for the community. And so the Americans were asked to help do some painting of walls. And they were painting as best as they could. With our American values, when a job is put in front of us, especially when we see it as a service opportunity, we try to do it with our whole heart. And we, by what, what we mean by that is that we try to do it right the first time. And what we mean by that when we're painting a wall is we paint it very thoroughly. That's how Americans paint. Uh, and so when Mexicans uh, encounter a project like this, they also do it with their whole heart and they do it for the Lord, working for the Lord and not for men. And they see that paint is very expensive and that if you paint it thinly, that it goes further and it saves resources in the kingdom of God. And so with their best effort to serve the kingdom, they paint walls very thinly. And so there was a, con a little bit of conflict, not a bad conflict, but discussion between the Americans and the Mexicans. When the Mexicans kept noticing that the Americans were going through paint at a fast pace and they came and they asked, this gallon of paint should cover the whole wall. You know, why is it not? And the Americans are saying, we're filling in every crack and hole on the concrete blocks. And the Mexicans are saying, no, 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 no. Just gloss over it. Everyone will get the idea. You know, they, and then we won't waste so much money. A similar incident happened to me uh, in a different context. I tried to play with one of the three-year-old Mexican boys. He was throwing a beanbag off of a balcony at us repeatedly and then laughing as he would run down, scoop it up, run back up the stairs, and launch it at us again. I thought it would be fun to interact with him. His name is Abdiel. He's the son of one of the ministers there. So once he launches the beanbag and I reach down and I pick it up and I hide it behind my back as he runs down. And while he's looking for it, I sneak up onto the balcony where I'm going to throw it down at him. I think this is a fun game. Abdiel disagrees. He runs up the stairs, tears beginning to well in the sides of his eyes as a large uh, guero, that means white, strange man has stolen his beanbag toy. In his eyes, I'm certain this is how it looked. And he's running up these stairs at me with his arms outstretched, looking at me pleadingly, saying, Damilo, Damilo, which means give it to me, give it to me. And then he says in his little three-year-old high-pitched voice, Tu eres mal muchacho, which means you're a bad dude. Sometimes our efforts to understand each other don't land. They don't work the way that we had hoped. Now everything with Abdiel worked out just fine, and everything with the painting of the walls worked out brilliantly. They looked great. The Lord provided enough resources for the kingdom, and we understood more about each other when we were done than when we had begun. But the question for us today as we dive into what is a series of somewhat difficult Old Testament texts is why does the problem of misunderstanding and maybe undervaluing each other in different cultures still plague the world the way it does today? We live in an era in which it seems like the mistrust and the suspicion of others is at a higher level than maybe at any time, uh, at least in my life. Some here, though, remember when there was mistrust or distrust or suspicion about other cultures. Maybe cultures that today we accept and we understand better than we did before. There was a time not so long ago in our world where the Japanese or the Germans were so mistrusted 
They couldn't be thought of or even talked about in good ways, in socially acceptable ways, in public, polite society here. And sometimes today we find other cultures being the ones that we struggle with, whether it's cultures from the Middle East or those Hispanic cultures that are nearer to us geographically. And we see the struggle in politics and we see the struggle in our own hearts and minds. And I'm not by any means here today to talk about what we should do in politics or how we should vote or how we resolve all these very difficult issues. But to try for a few minutes to guide us through a couple of texts that show what God wishes the heart of a believer to be towards those who are other those who are strange to us. And keeping in your minds as we move through these texts this morning, that this series on hospitality that we're wrapping up today began four weeks ago with us defining hospitality in the New Testament, the Greek word, as being a love of strangers. And so we know that a fear of strangers is easy for us. In a broken and sinful world, it is often the first step. And we want to move through it to loving all of the people God has made. How does this happen for someone who loves God and who follows God's teachings? First, we're going to look at uh, Leviticus 19. And in this, you're going to find four commands that God gave to the people of Israel regarding foreigners. And although we aren't the nation of Israel, these commands show us the heart of God towards people that He also made. And that he values. So let's walk through them together. Leviticus 19, which Todd read, uh, Tom read to us just a few moments ago, verses 33 and 34. God said to the Israelites, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And as we move through these verses, you can see clearly the four things that God requires of the people. The four things that he asks them to do that will change their hearts, that will shape their minds, so that even through the fear they may experience, the otherness of people that come into the land of Israel, that they could learn how to see those people through God's eyes, see them with the love that he has for them. The first one is this. Don't take advantage of foreigners. This seems basic to anyone who's a follower of Jesus because we're not to take advantage of anyone. But it's foundational because for any person who wants to check themselves and say, do I harbor any of the feelings or the emotions or the, the worldly values that might go against God's hopes for me and for other people, for people who are strangers, this is where it begins. Do we treat them fairly? Do I extend to people who are different than myself the full advantage instead of taking advantage? Especially those who live amongst me. Those who I have contact with. Those who come around me. The second one is this. Treat them like native-born Israelites. Now again, we're not in Israel. We're in America. But the principle that God shares with His people is treat those who are different as if they had been born amongst you. Treat them like they were from your own country. Citizens of equal status like yourself. 
This will help you down the road towards the kind of contact that God wants you to create with them and towards the results that God hopes for. The third one is this. Love them as you love yourself. If no other part of today's message echoes with the Christian, resounds in our hearts and shows us that Jesus was borrowing and teaching from these same places in Scripture, it might help us to remember that in Leviticus 19, one of the strangest chapters in the Bible, probably one of the most difficult to preach from, one that has a variety of commands that don't even all seem to fit together, that the chapter, Leviticus 19, hinges around a verse in the middle that says to love your neighbor as yourself. That's talking about your fellow Israelites. And then it's later redefined or further applied in this verse by saying, even love the foreigner as you love yourself. Jesus, of course, famously will go on in the parable of the Good Samaritan to show exactly how much this command of God might stretch us. And fourthly, remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. Remember that you were strangers to God. Like Walton said in his communion talk today, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God reminds the people of Israel that it wasn't so very long ago that you were in Egypt and you were the strangers. You were the Xenos. You were the ones of whom the Egyptians were afraid. And you remember what fear drove them to do to you, putting you under slave masters, forcing you to make bricks for all of their projects, and then making it harder and harder by removing straw and asking you to uh, make the same allotment of bricks every day, even without the materials. That is what fear of others does to us. And so people of Israel, God said, remember that you were in this situation not so very long ago. I am the Lord, your God. And he doesn't abandon them with just the principles and no help. He gives them a very practical way to begin to change their hearts and shape the way that they think about other people to match what God thinks about other people. So here's the practical ways to help ancient aliens, which by the way, aliens simply means foreigners, from the mouth of God. What did God teach the people to do? Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, which Tom had also read for us, reads this way. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. So the people are supposed to harvest the interior of the field and, and leave a little bit around the edge standing. How much is a little bit? Well, the Jewish rabbis debated this over the years. We have quite a list a record of the different conversations they had about how much of a border of the field was enough. Some of them said it was a few feet. Some of them said it was six feet. There was a myriad of laws and rules and expectations about how much was enough. But in much similar way to what God asks of us in the New Testament, when he says, give cheerfully, give as you've been prospered, the Jewish rabbis often recognized that the more that a person was willing to give, the better the gift could be received. And the more that a person was prospered, the more crops they had, probably the more they ought to be willing to give. And so the instruction isn't legalistic in its original form. It's meant to show grace to others. And then also it continues in this way, do not pick up what the harvesters drop. The rabbis debated this as well. 
They would even go so far as to make some rules about uh, what you held in the hand when you cut the grain was yours to keep unless you dropped it. If you never actually secured it in your hand, you sort of missed the clump of grain. You were allowed to pick it up. If it fell off the back of the sickle or the tip of the sickle, you might be allowed to collect it and keep it for yourself because you never had the chance to catch it. And so they would go through all of these different ways and levels of trying to determine what can you keep and what can't you keep. But the principle, the hope in God's command, as it's outlined in the rest of chapter 19, is love your neighbor as yourself. Be generous with those, even those who aren't like you. Verse 10 continues in the same vein. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. And in both of these passages, we've seen God end His command by reminding the people, I am the Lord your God. You do this because you fear me. Not because you fear foreigners. Because you love me. And through loving me, you'll learn to love them as well. This was so important to God that it gets repeated several times in scriptures. Actually, Leviticus 23 repeats the same command almost word for word. But in Deuteronomy 24, we find a different version with the same principles underneath it. God said to the people through Moses, True justice must be given to the foreigners living among you. And to orphans, and you must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. What this means is you shouldn't take something that the widow needs in order to prove to you or pledge to you that she'll repay the debt to you. Make sure that people in need, the poor, the foreigners, the widows and the orphans, have what they need. Always remember, and notice this gets repeated again, that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God redeemed you from your slavery. And that is why I've given you this command. When you're harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. And then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for foreigners, orphans, and widows. And when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they're picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Do you notice how often God repeats foreigners, orphans, and widows? Those who are poor and those who are other. And so these three principles about harvest become the practical way in which God wants to change the hearts of the people to serve those who are different than them or in a lower place or in a hard time, in a rough spot. And so today we know that there are many things that could be done, and some that are done. Things that are taxed by the government. Things that are given of gifts of free will by people who love God, and often by those who don't even know or follow the name of Jesus. And yet we know as believers in God, as followers of God, that there is something in these principles of leaving something extra for those who do not have. That should and could today still radically transform our hearts. When we find ourselves becoming angry, upset, or frustrated about the people that may be in our country. God finishes this passage, and now this is the third time we've seen it, by reminding the people again the motive for acting this way 
is that you must remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. This is why I'm giving you this command. Now, as this works out in the history of the people of Israel, and they begin to put some of these things into practice, or at other times fail to put them into practice, we see success stories, and we see stories where things go terribly wrong. In fact, maybe in many ways related to the same kind of emotions and responses that we see in our world today, there are some times when it seems like Israel gets it, and they begin to love with the kind of love that God had imagined they could show. There's other times where the train comes off the rails, and the whole thing begins to fall apart, and it's a huge pileup, and it's a mess. And the way that the ancient Israelite writers recorded these stories for us was by using a comparison. There is a literary comparison that happens in the books of Judges and Ruth that shows for the ancient Israelites, and also for us today, what does it look like when this goes so wrong? What does it look like when it works as God had intended? So I'm going to invite you to walk through these stories with me over the next couple of minutes, even though we don't have time to read them all today, and to consider, if you already know some of the stories from the book of Judges and the story of Ruth, how these play off each other and compare. And if you don't know them, you could go home today and you could read them. In fact, in a total of seven chapters, which only takes about 10 to 15 minutes, you could read the entirety of the two stories that were compared. Let's start with Ruth 1.1. As this book opened up, and we don't even know yet that there's going to be this brave, courageous young woman who's a foreigner who gets into the line of David and the lineage of Jesus Christ, the authors know where they're going with the story, and so they introduced it in this way. In Ruth 1.1 it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now why would they say that? First of all, it sets a time frame. So we know when the story of Ruth happened. But even more than that, it plays a literary function. It recalls for us the last book, the previous book, the one that maybe we've just finished reading, the book of Judges. And it might recall to our minds, if we were so aware, that the way the book of Judges ended was on a very sour note, a very bad note. In fact, the whole book of Judges is just a, a storm that keeps cycling around where the people will follow God for a short period of time and then, they, and then they abandon Him. They forget about Him and His ways and they stop obeying. And God has to send in someone to rescue them, set things right again, and try to win back their hearts. But the sense of the book of Judges is that this spiral is going downwards and not upwards. And so Ruth recalls this. In the days when the judges ruled, when things were falling apart, when not many in Israel were faithful. Judges 19 through 21, the three chapters that you would have just read, if you had read Judges and then Ruth, is bookended by this one saying or this phrase. It happens in 19.1 and it happens in the very last sentence of the book of Judges. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. It goes on to say, everyone did as he saw fit. We all know how things work out when everyone does as they see fit. Anarchy reigns. Chaos reigns. This is what happens when you put a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old all in the same room together with no one uh, to manage them, right? Everyone does as they see fit. And mom and dad have to come in and make a ruling. And in that day, in that time, there was no king in Israel. This should be shocking on a couple of levels, first of all. 
uh, because no one is leading in Israel. Because none of these faithful people, God-fearing people, are stepping up and doing something about the problems that are going on in their country. But in an even uh, more subtle way, right under the surface, this sentence says to you as the reader that not even God is regarded as king in Israel. No one is honoring him. No one is following his ways. There was no king in Israel, not a man and not their God. What you read in this story, and I don't want to go into too many of the details today uh, because it has some really shocking material that might not be good for our entire audience. But what you see in the story is that there is some radical hospitality that's given in one town, the town of Bethlehem. There's a man, he has a lady friend with him. And because she has run away, he goes to find her again, finds her at her father's house, and three times in a row, hospitality is extended in Bethlehem. The father says, stay with me a little longer. Let's eat together. I'll, I'll put you up for the night. Stay a little longer. And again, the third time, stay a little longer. And finally, the man and his lady leave on their journey. But when they're traveling, they come into a city of the people of Benjamin. A city called Gibeah. And in Gibeah, they get treated terribly. Things go awfully wrong. It ends up with one person dead, and the entire nation of Israel shocked to their core at the brutality that had happened amongst their own people. In a setting in which it would be expected, hospitality would always be given to one of our own countrymen, to someone from our own people. In fact, this is underscored in the story when the man and his lady almost stay for the night in a Gentile city. And they're given some advice. Don't stay there. We don't know how the foreign people might treat us. Go instead to the next city, the people that are of our own uh, country, that follow our God, and go there and surely we'll be treated well. And that's where the disaster occurs, in the city of Gibeah that's in red on the screen. In fact, the people at the very end of the book, at the end of this story, and then again at the end of the book, they note that this kind of treatment, this horrible action that befalls the people, it shouldn't happen anywhere, much less in Israel. How could this happen amongst our own people? It shakes them all. And there's another subtle literary comparison happening here because the story, if you know it or if you read it, sounds remarkably like another similar story that happens in Genesis chapter 19 that's known to most of us simply as Sodom and Gomorrah. Something that happened amongst strangers, amongst people who are different, who might be feared, not by the people of God, not by noble Abram and his family and the people that come from his lineage. In Genesis 19, it can be blamed on someone else, but in Judges 19, the blame comes home. And the people can't believe that it's happened in their own land. This is the wickedness in Israel. But Ruth wants to tell the story of a nobler theme. What about when righteousness reigns? What about when the foreigner is treated with respect? What about a, is there a city? Could there be a place where everyone is treated with the kind of love that God had outlined in His law in Leviticus 19 and 23 and Deuteronomy 24? And so in Ruth 1, we begin to read about a story in the days of the judges while the rest of this mess is going on around. 
where a family departs from and returns to Bethlehem in Judea. Notice this is the same city in which hospitality was extended in the previous book. And so if you know any of this story, you might remember that the family moves into a foreign country. They suffer loss. The men in the family all die. The mother comes back with only one daughter-in-law who's a foreigner, who's a Moabite, and who's hated. The Moabites are hated by the Israelites, but she's faithful enough to come home with the mother. In Ruth 2, we read about how the foreigner gleans. In other words, she harvests under the protection of a righteous citizen of Judah, of Bethlehem. And so the law that God had set up in Leviticus 19 and 23 and Deuteronomy 24 aids this woman, Ruth. She goes to the fields of a man named Boaz and he has faithfully left the edges of the fields where some foreigner or poor person could come and get some food. And he even treats her so kindly that he has his men uh, drop some extra food as they're carrying their baskets home so that she gets more grain in the end than any of the other women and any of the other women in the town. He's the most generous harvester in the city in which it seems like most of the harvesters are following these laws. There is some hope yet for the people of God. There is some righteousness in Israel. And in chapters 3 and 4, we read about how God's good laws, and there's other laws that get woven into this story about how you redeem a family that's lost their inheritance, but God's good laws lead to the union of Boaz and Ruth. And finally, as the story notes right at the end of the book of Ruth, the lineage of King David. You remember that in the days of the judges, there was no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. But through the actions of a righteous man in a righteous village in Israel, in the time of the judges, God prepares the people. He makes a lineage using a foreigner. And the faithfulness of God's people to the laws that He's established to bring them together and to create the family through which the greatest king of Israel comes and the king of all the world follows after. How does God even imagine these kinds of stories? And if you really want this to land home, consider that King Saul is from Gibeah and Benjamin. King David is from Bethlehem and Judea. Wow! These stories shape us. They rock us to our core. And they remind us that God expects those who have been truly freed to make the most room of all. God expects those of us who have been blessed to make the most provision for those who are less. God expects those who know they've been forgiven of something, who know they've been freed from slavery, to make space for those who might still be coming to God. And the reason that we treat people right as Christians in our nation, regardless of where they're from, regardless of how we vote, or regardless of what their kinsmen may have done, is because we know that sometimes through the most absurd scenarios, God uses people who follow His instructions and treat others with love instead of fear to produce some great leaders for the kingdom of God. And He can do it again in this generation. There may be a leader in God's church two or three generations from now who He will raise up 
to powerfully call this country back to God that comes from the faithfulness that one of us or our kinspeople show to a foreigner in our country in this generation. And we don't know who it might be or when it might happen. And so we owe it to God and we owe it to all people to treat them with this kind of love. Remember, church, that you were slaves, not in the land of Egypt, but in sin and far from God, that so was I, that we were all without hope and without God in the world. And then He reached in in His great love and He broke the chains of slavery. He set us free. Jesus will comment on this in Luke 7 when He's invited hospitably, it seems, to the banquet of a prominent Pharisee. That man sees a woman come in and criticizes her. A strange woman of whom he is afraid for honoring Jesus. And Jesus tells him a story. One man owned a money lender, a large sum of money, and the other just a few dollars. He forgave them both. The first man who was given a few dollars goes to the other man and almost strangles him to death, demanding a little bit of money back in return. Jesus asked this question. He says, who do you think loved him more? And the man wisely answers, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus says, you've answered rightly. When we understand how much God has done for us, it paves the way for us to treat others with justice, with compassion, to leave even more than they deserve and to give with a generous heart. And we, church, can do it in this generation. It can happen amongst God's people now. So our prayer for you and for all of us, is that we would learn to love others, even strangers, with this kind of godly love. Amen, church? Amen. And today we offer the invitation to you. If we can pray for you or help you in any way, will you please let our shepherds know? Some of them will be here at the front, standing with me, and some in the back. And they would love to give you counsel, to listen, to pray, or to baptize you into Jesus this morning. Let's stand together. Let's sing this song of invitation and respond if you need to.